Iconic makeup artist. Beauty industry revolutionary. Entrepreneur. Bobby Brown is all these things and so much more. Throughout her career, she has crossed paths with some of the most accomplished people at the top of their field. These conversations are a look into their inspiring lives because everyone has a story. This is Long Story Short with Bobby Brown. Seamus Mullen, he's an award-winning New York chef, restaurateur, and cookbook author. But what he's really known for is his amazing Spanish cuisine. In 2007, he was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis that forced him to rethink not only his career, but his whole relationship with food. He decided to make a giant change and just honestly eat better. And he had the help of someone that I really admire, Dr. Frank Lippman. I'm really looking forward to talking to Seamus. I have uh, been a fan of his for a long time, and I somehow ordered his book and just am devouring all the recipes. And what I love most about him, besides his incredible story of how he really turned his health around and um, actually he loves food and he really teaches people how to, it's not what you don't eat, it's what you do eat. So I'm looking forward to talking to him. He's also kind of cute. And I think he's pretty cute. You're right, Michelle. He is really cute. (laughs) Here's my conversation with Seamus Mullen. Do you drink alcohol? Yep. Yes, I love this man. He eats cheese and drinks alcohol and he's healthy and he's yep. changed his life and yeah. he's all these cool things and he's really cute. But right. all of those things, except for the really cute part, have <laughs> always been really cute. But all those other yeah. things yeah. I don't do all the time. Right. And so okay. I definitely have gone through I've gone through periods of time of, of not mm-hmm. I've gone through periods of time of not eating any dairy, of not drinking alcohol. And I regularly like this week. I haven't, today's Wednesday. I haven't had a drink since Saturday. Mm-hmm. Um, last week was a little more stressful. I definitely, had, I like yeah. drank every night yeah. last week, but yeah. not, I don't usually drink more than two glasses of wine. Or, and what was stressful last week? Oh, life. Life? Work? Yeah. Something? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I got to move at the end of the month. Uh, well, you live in I live city? in Dumbo, yeah. Do you know where you're going? Well, I have a house in Dutchess County, so uh-huh. I'm going there for that's okay. While I figure out what I want to do in the city. Okay, and you're yeah. and you have two restaurants. I don't have any restaurants anymore. You don't yeah. have any restaurants. No, I closed anymore. my restaurants. Gotcha. I was I was trying to understand how you can have restaurants and be this health guy. So let's start. Let's yeah. start at the beginning, which sure. is where I usually start. Yeah, yeah. So um, your real name is Seamus Francis Mullen. Okay. Yeah. And you grew up where? I grew up in Vermont. Okay. And brothers, sisters, big family? I, I have an older brother, small family. I have an older mm-hmm. brother who's two and a half years older than I am. He lives in Brooklyn. Okay. Um, he's got two kids and, oh. and a wife and okay. very close with them. Two kids and no wife? No, and a wife. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was going to say that. Full, very... full family, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. good. All right, cool. Yeah. And growing up, what did your parents do? So I grew up, um, from an early age, we, were, we had a subsistence farm. Mm-hmm. Um, or an organic farm, biodynamic farm, before anyone kind wow. of talked about that stuff. And uh, and then in the 80s, my dad actually had to get a real job, and uh, he's very smart. He figured out how to program early on. He got into the into software business early on wow. in the, in the mid-80s. And my mother was a school teacher for a while, so initially we had a farm, and then my mother became a school teacher, and then later um, got her master's in social work and became a social worker. Mm-hmm. And growing up, so... 
food was a big part of your growing up. Food was up a big healthy. part. Yeah, I mean, food was a huge part of it. The irony is that um, we kind of grew up on the the Molly Katzen Enchanted Broccoli Forest uh-huh, Moosewood right. Cookbook era of uh-huh. health food, right. which funny now as I look back, um, I had a lot of digestive issues and health issues mm-hmm. from a very young age. And I think a big part of it was that our diet was so heavily based on gluten and carbohydrates right. and and hidden sugars that we didn't really know about and a lot of soy. All Because right, what was her, I remember her cookbook and I remember seeing it yeah. in my aunt's house. What was her thing? Was whole I mean, grains? It, whole grains, vegetarian, whole, right. whole grains. Right. Um, and I think there's a lot of great, you know, I mean, there's a lot of great stuff in that. Right. Um, and, I th- and, and I think it's better if you're eating a lot of that than eating crap, mm-hmm. um, crap meat. But uh, there's also like that whole mentality, the 1970s health food was very, very, very much focused on carbohydrates and uh, a lot of tofu, soy products, things like that, which I know now are super inflammatory. Right. Yeah. And so you've kind of got into the food business on passion? Yeah. Well, I mean, growing up in Vermont, there weren't a whole lot of um, summer job options Mm -hmm. other than mowing lawns, splitting wood, or working in a local pizzeria. And so I, Mm -hmm. I did all of the above and then eventually ended up kind of really working in restaurants just to pay my way through to earn money in the summer and then to pay my way through college. Um, Where'd you go to college? I went to college in Michigan for two years uh-huh. at Kalamazoo College, and then I went to school in Spain. So I did, mm-hmm. went to public university in Spain. Right. Um, I have a, an Irish passport, so I was able to go uh-huh. and live in Europe, and I worked in Europe years later as well. And what'd you major in? I majored in Spanish literature. Okay. Very, very useful uh, yeah. degree if you okay. want to go into the restaurant industry. Yeah. And then after graduation, did you move right to New York? Uh, no, I didn't. I, so I, I got right into cooking. I lived in Philadelphia for a little while, mm-hmm. San Francisco, and then I moved to New York. So I've been in New York for about 19 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I bounced around a little bit. I took a hiatus from New York for a couple of years and went to Spain and worked um, in Barcelona and San Sebastian. And what kind of jobs were you doing in the restaurants? Uh, early on, dishwasher, then prep cook, and then working my way up to uh, being a line cook. And eventually, um, in my late 20s, I got my first job as a sous chef. Um, so I've, I've been doing it. I mean, it's pretty much the only thing I've ever done is right. worked in the restaurant. Yeah. Uh, and and it's kind of a classic trajectory. Now a lot of people talk about going to culinary school. The reality is that most chefs are most interested in people that actually have real life trial by fire work experience than just going to culinary school and coming out. So your first job as a as a sous chef, was that for a big restaurant or just getting your foot in the door? Yeah, regular for, restaurant for, for a pretty big restaurant in Midtown. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean we were we were a big busy restaurant. It was a it was definitely there was a steep learning curve. Mm, what was the name uh, of it? Was it? It's still around. It's Brasserie Eight and a Half. Okay, on Fifty Seventh Street. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and that was you know that was that was a legitimate you know opening eye opening experience working in New York City. Yeah. And then what was your big break? My big break was in 2006 mm-hmm. um, when I opened my first restaurant. Okay. So wait, so you went from this being a sous chef to opening your first restaurant? Yeah, I mean, I went from the the way the kitchen rank goes, there's, you know, you start as a as a, as a commis, which is a helper, essentially, right. and then you become a, a chef de partie where you're a line cook. Eventually, you move on to sous chef if you're lucky, mm-hmm. then executive sous chef, then right. chef de cuisine, and then executive chef. So there's a there's a whole kind of pecking order, mm-hmm. um, and I went through that whole process. And 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 when I was the chef de cuisine um, in Midtown, that's when uh, I had the opportunity to I started thinking about what was missing in the New York dining landscape, and Spanish food was really starting to to get hot. I had just come back from working in Spain for a couple of years. 
there weren't very many Spanish restaurants in New York, and so I thought it would be a great opportunity to bring that casual tapas-style dining to New York. Okay. And, and that's when we opened the first place. And did you finance it yourself? Did you have backers? Uh, we had limited partners, so we had yeah. uh, friends and family investment. Okay. Uh, and the the first location was a was a runaway success. You know, we opened with... I think I think it cost us maybe four hundred and fifty thousand dollars to open, and we did four million in sales that year. Wow. So it was like it, we were, it was gangbusters from out the door. Yeah. I mean, when we opened, it wasn't, but then we got an incredible review from the New York Times. Yeah, and that just that, and so then, that was like the big deal. that was a big break. Yeah, getting. I mean, yeah. in, in New York, if you're as a restaurant, the New York Times review is what makes or breaks mm-hmm. you. Right, and um, and we got a glowing review from Frank Bruni in the New York Times, and. And and Frank went on to review me a few other times, and mm-hmm. and every time I got great reviews, and that just kind of solidified my career. And you also um, was it the same time that you were competing on cooking shows? That's when it started. I mean, as you as as my career kind of took off, and I gained a little bit of notoriety within the dining world. Then along with that comes the opportunities of doing more media, and uh, so I, I started to do some stuff. And then in two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, I was on the next Iron Chef on. Um, on the Food Network. And the irony is that my career was going really, really well, but my health was totally in, in, the, in the crapper. I mean, I was not doing well at all. It was really unhealthy. Well, what's, I mean, what's it like actually working in a restaurant and getting out, you know? Hell. Out, yeah, hell, <laughs> but, hell. But I mean, I don't think people get it, people that dine in restaurants. Like, like when yeah. the restaurant closes at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, right. then what happens? Then you got to clean everything. Right. You got to break everything down. You have to, I mean, on a very, very base level, yeah. like every bit of food that's prepped needs to come out of whatever container it's in. That container needs to be washed. A new container it goes into it. All the fish, everything needs to be labeled. Everything has to be iced down. Then the whole kitchen needs to be cleaned. And I mean, that's your a job process. even when you have your own restaurant? Oh, yeah. Or? Oh, yeah. You have to supervise all do. of that. So you're not, I mean, if a restaurant closes at midnight, most cooks aren't walking out of there until two in the morning, Ugh. and then they're getting a drink, and they're getting they're hungry, and they're getting something to eat. Yeah. So they're getting home at five in the morning, six in the morning mm-hmm. on a regular basis, sleeping a couple of hours, then waking up and going and doing it all over again. Right, because you're too tired to go to the gym. You're you too tired. Like oh, of course not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what, actually, it was my, when I was working in Spain, which is where it's really like very, very old school, mm-hmm. um, the old nineteenth century mentality of, of of the hierarchy in the kitchen. I literally, we worked six days a week, and I'd be in the restaurant at 7.30 in the morning. We'd work until, you know, in Spain, lunch service is the principal service, mm-hmm. and it happens much later than it does in, in, right. in the States. So people eat lunch at 2 o'clock. So we would have lunch service that ended at 5.30. Mm-hmm. And if you were lucky, you got a break from like 6 to 8. And then dinner service would start at 9 o'clock, and you'd go until, you wouldn't get home until 1 or 2 in the morning, but you're starting at 7.30 in the morning, and you did that six days a week. And that... It's just exhausting to the level that I can't even mm, begin to. Yeah. And it, what was your diet like at the time? Terrible. Like what? Like what? I mean, what, anything. So well, it I was mean, probably really delicious. It, there were, yeah, everything was delicious. But the reality <clears> is, <throat> when you walk into a restaurant, you'll notice a lot of people eating out of quart containers right. because you have no time to actually sit down and have a meal. So you're constantly grazing. And I, I think there were probably years, years, consecutive years where I probably didn't sit down for a meal. Mm. I literally was always just eating all day long, but never, right. never hungry, <clears throat> never not hungry. Mm-hmm. And you had put on like a ton of weight. Ton right? of weight, yeah. Which is which is very. I mean, if you're not, it's easy to put on weight just in general for a lot of people if you're not careful about the portions that you right. eat. But then if you're eating throughout the course of the day and you're tasting everything that you're making, and mm-hmm. you've got to be trying sauces, and you've got to be tasting the braises you're making, and all right. this stuff, 
at the end of the day, suddenly, without even realizing it, you could have eaten 4,000 calories. Right. And yet you still feel kind of hungry. Do you think it's even possible for anyone to open a restaurant that really has healthy food? I mean, I've been to Cafe Clover a bunch. Yep. I love it. Yep. I can't always talk my friends into going there who aren't like really? health guys. Yeah, if they're not like health food guys, they don't want a bowl of, you know, kombucha or something. You know <laughs> what I mean? It's like Yeah, that's gonna change though. Yeah. They're gonna figure it out soon. Soon I, enough they have to. Yeah, I hope so. You you can't I mean, yes. There, there are ways of, of, there are lots of healthy restaurants. I think one of the challenges is that there's so many places in the professional kitchen where crap ingredients sneak in, whether mm -hmm. it's canola oil, right. so-called vegetable oils, which are like my nemesis, mm -hmm. um, sugars, carbohydrates, right. uh, processed foods. It's, it's easy to throw a bunch of fat and sugar and salt at something and make it taste really mm -hmm. good. What is challenging is to take um, really pristine, beautiful vegetables, celebrate them, but still make them really, really appealing and craveable. And I think that's one of the one of the um, the, the the obstacles to creating a healthy restaurant. And then, of course, in a place like New York, there's so many barriers to entry. The costs are prohibitively expensive. It's very difficult to make mm -hmm. any money in 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 uh, in food um, unless you're doing something at scale. Right. So when did you hit rock bottom? Like oh, like physically? Like physi where you're like yeah. I can't. Physical rock bottom happened in 2012, and um, I was 65 pounds overweight. I was living with, so I'd been diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, which is a chronic inflammatory autoimmune disease, diagnosed with Sjogren's syndrome. Um, Sjogren, I don't know that. It's another autoimmune dysfunction okay. where your, ear ducts don't, your, your tear ducts don't work properly. So I had one eye that net was dry for about a year. Didn't, mm -hmm. I'd never had any tears. Incredibly painful. Um, fibromyalgia, mm -hmm. which is just a you know, a bogus BS diagnosis for n neuropathic pain. Right. Um, and I had just come back from going to a wedding in Thailand where I had a grand mal seizure that lasted mm. 11 minutes, wow. um, which was caused by two of the medications that had been prescribed to me. So when I when wow. I went to in, in the hospital in, in Thailand, the doctor took a look at the meds and said, you cannot take these together. Hmm. And yet- And they know that in Thailand. And they knew that in right. Thailand in a very, very good um, wow. private hospital. Um, and here in the states, they prescribe these two right. these two the drugs. Same doctor, yeah. yeah. And uh, so I came back from that. I was obviously really my brain was scrambled. I was very sick. I was on and um, I was on immunosuppressants for for rheumatoid arthritis, which is uh, the common way of treating autoimmune dysfunction. One of the problems with the way that we look at illness in this country is that we treat the symptoms. It's mm -hmm. all symptomatic based treatment. Um, and while immunosuppressants will suppress the, the overproduction of cytokines, which are the inflammatory protein that the immune system produces when you're having an RA flare-up. Um, they also suppress the entirety of the immune system and leave mm. you exposed to other things. So I came back to the States and developed a very, very bad infection in my brain, um, uh, bacterial meningitis. Oh, my God. And uh, so I, I essentially died in the ICU. You know, everything stopped. And I had a near-death experience or a death experience where I saw the light and in my state of unconscious consciousness, decided that it wasn't it wasn't my time, and I physically made the effort to come back to reality. And in doing that, um, you know, I, I came back to being in the ICU. The next day, my doctor said, "You know, we almost lost you last night." Oh. And I said, "I know." I, I, I had a fever of 106 degrees. So, oh my god! Um, and when I came out of that, I sort of had this new 
appreciation for the vulnerability of life and the fragility mm-hmm. of life. Um, and you were how old at this I age? I was, uh, was uh, 38, I'm 45 now. I was 38 years old, yeah. So I had spent 10, 11 solid years on medication in pain, just soldiering through. Mm. Um, and also, I mean, you know, not... Not that I'm, I don't talk about this a whole lot, but I also abusing substances to get right. through and and, um, and and just doing anything I could to just get through the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And then I hit this point where I died and had the incredible fortune of not actually dying and realized that if I don't make a serious, serious course correction to my life right now, mm-hmm. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be around. Right. I will not live. And I'd actually and and very I mean since then I've I've lost a number of my colleagues who have uh, mm. who, who have died to who have died from a variety of things from from uh, overdose to health issues and suicide. I mean it's been a you know it's 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 it is very eye opening to realize that life is so fragile and if you aren't careful it, it's very, very easy to lose. Um, so I, I, I made a commitment to myself to make changes. I didn't know what to do, mm-hmm. but I knew that I had to change. Um, and, and that's, you know, I was really, really lucky to meet Dr. Frank Lippman. Who, who introduced you, I, you to Dr. We Lippman? Have in common. Uh, my friend um, Jason did. Jason uh, knew what was going on with me, and he was a good friend of, of Frank's. And he said, you know, I think you and Frank should talk. And uh, and so I went to meet Frank, and I didn't think that I was going to see him as a doctor. Right. I was still in a stage of like, I think I can do this. I got this. Right. And and a lot of people that are listening don't don't know that he's a functional doctor. He's yeah. an actual MD doctor. Mm-hmm. Worked in emergency rooms. He's brilliant, but he's a functional doctor, so he doesn't just you know give you pills when something's wrong. No, but he will, if need be, give you pills. Right, of course. And that's you know that's one of the one of the things I really loved about getting to know him uh, is that he wasn't. So woo woo that he was like, no, we're just gonna burn some smoke around right. you and give you these, take mm-hmm. some turmeric pills and you're gonna be fine. Right. He was very much invested in testing, uh, understanding. You know, the first thing he asked me, he said, I want you to tell me your medical history. Yeah. And I started with, well, you know, I've have RA and I was diagnosed X number of years ago. And he said, No, I wanna know everything from your childhood to now. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote everything down. And what he was able to do, and now I understand much better, is I have a much deeper understanding of how how our body works. That this, as the body is a system. If if our health goes off the rails, it doesn't happen one day to the next. It, it's a long and slow, insidious process, and it's a series of missteps over the course of a very long period of time that eventually ends up with um, you know so you know for instance if you're very overweight it doesn't happen overnight it's a number of small choices over the course of a very long period of time that lead to that um, and so you know we looked at everything from my childhood which circles back to what I was talking about how we were my childhood with food we ate a lot of carbohydrates we ate mm-hmm. a lot of gluten I remembered now when we were discussing this that after every meal as a kid I'd I'd be bloated and I would feel really gassy and uncomfortable and I have to lie down after every meal. Mm. And I started realizing it was actually when I was eating legumes and gluten that that would happen. Um, I think the best advice I can ever give someone when it comes to food and diet is get your, try to get to a point where you understand a healthy baseline, what it means to feel good and then add foods in. And if you notice that you don't feel great when you eat certain things, then it's a good indication you shouldn't be eating them. them. Yeah. And when did your book come out? It came out last year. Last year. Yeah. So talk talk a little bit about your book. So um, it's called it, Real Food Heals, and the recipes 
are delish, look delicious. Mm-hmm. The pictures are gorgeous. Yeah. So my, you know, as I went through my whole process, my getting my health back, um, Maybe I should explain what happened in that because it was it was pretty it wasn't it wasn't just like oh you know one day I saw Dr. Lippman and, he and gave then me you were a, better and I was yeah. better no yeah. I I was you know I was super super sick and he kind of guided me but made it really clear that I was going to have to do the work that it, he couldn't fix me the only person that can fix Seamus is Seamus right and the only person and Seamus can only do that when Seamus is ready to do that you can't you can lead a horse to water mm-hmm. um, but you know I I was at the point where. I had had a number of kind of false starts where I thought that I was going to do the right thing. But at that point, when I was at that low point, it was really clear that I had to had to make a change. And so Frank helped me recalibrate how I thought about health and mm-hmm. understand that um, the, the myriad decisions we make throughout the course of our day, our week, our life, all add up to a picture of wellness or a picture, picture of, of mm-hmm. ill health. And... Um, and so I, I really like to think of it as being the, 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 the sum of all those little decisions. On their own, they may seem in, insignificant, but every choice we make throughout the course of our day is going to impact the, 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 the bigger picture. And we started making all he, – he helped me, but we started making all these really good choices about, about my life. And, the, and, and those were choices that included woo-woo things like meditation and yoga – but non-woo things like low-level antibiotics, anti-parasitic medication, supplementation, uh, elimination diet, all of that. And the irony was I kind of had right in front of me the most important tool for a healing protocol, which was food. I knew a lot about mm-hmm. how to make food taste really good. Um, and historically, when we think about health food, there's been a real neg- negative stigma attached to the idea. If you lead with health and then food, the first thing you're going to think is like, oh, great, it's going to be tastes like crap, right. mm-hmm. and it's gonna it's it's going to be um, you know boring and dry. And I knew that I could make really healthy food, nutrient dense food, taste mm-hmm. really really good because that's what I do. And uh, and so I started doing that. And as I just started cooking for myself more and more and more, I realized there's just so much here to share. Um, and I really want to help empower people to make positive change in their life through the decisions they make. And they have to be full of joy because mm-hmm. eating is one of, we have two basic needs in, mm-hmm. in life. We have to reproduce and we have to eat. And um, and there should be pleasure attached to both of those activities. And food is something that should be deeply pleasurable. It's about joy, sharing food with friends and family and coming together. And when you strip the joy out of it, um, it becomes a chore. It becomes something that we uh, have an obligation to. And um, I don't think the word obligation should ever be associated with food. But for those of us that go out for dinner a bunch, mm-hmm. how do you how do you manage to eat healthy and going out for dinner? Like, what kind of things can you ask your waiter to ask, you know, the kitchen to do? Well, or do you think that's impossible? I don't think it's impossible because I've been a, I've been the person in the kitchen yeah. for many many years who's gotten all sorts of requests. And I think that often you don't spit in their food or anything. Never. No. Well, okay. once in a while. Okay. But no. <laughs> no. Yeah. Bobby, please. Mm-hmm. Um, we're professionals around here. I was a waitress. Yeah, you know? okay. I, I, I know. I saw what the guys did. Yeah. yeah. Well, times have changed. Yeah. I, you know, the 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 thing that I think people often forget is that we are actually in in the restaurant industry. We're in the business of saying yes. We're in the business of caring for people, and that's right. why people, most people, go into hospitality because they really do derive a lot of fulfillment and pleasure from caring for other people and providing. And that's certainly why I became a cook. Um, and so we are 
we've always, and particularly in recent years, it's changed a lot. Where in the restaurants, we're hyper, hyper concerned about food allergies, food preferences, making sure that we are actually providing the person who's coming into our restaurant with a positive experience. Mm -hmm. So if you come in and you say, Hey, you know, and and I think that it's always nice to be to be as polite as you can. Right. As the diner, you're in someone else's home essentially, mm -hmm. but and you're asking them to do something that might be somewhat outside of their wheelhouse. Right. But what I always do is, I mean, here's a, here's a real basic one, mm -hmm. and this is one that obviously yep. everybody knows. But you're you're going out to lunch. They they have a burger on the menu, and uh, you ask them, and it turns out it's grass fed beef and it's good quality beef, and and you say, Hey, do you think I could get that with no bun? Um, and instead of the fries that come with it, can I get a salad with, with, a olive oil and, and vinegar on the side? And, you know, that's not, that's right. not revolutionary or groundbreaking yeah. re a request, but then you're, you're navigating what could otherwise be uh, relatively unhealthy. You're taking a relatively unhealthy dish and making it much healthier. Um, and so I, you know, I, I make no qualms about when I go into a restaurant asking them to, mm -hmm. to, um, to alter a dish so that it works for me. And generally speaking, I try to ensure that I'm not going to restaurants where I, you know, I, I, dim sum, for instance, is something that I love, but I know makes me feel like crap. Right. And so- Well, I'm I've, good with the Chinese restaurants. I ask for steamed broccoli, steamed chicken, and then I'll take like a tablespoon of someone's goo yep, and like and mix just it mix it in. And that's so know. much better because you know that the the you, you have no idea what the oils yeah. are that they're cooking with. And that's one of the, right. one of the major issues or all the sugar mm -hmm. that could be in the sauce or something. And I stopped eating rice. That's, like I used yeah. to think rice was like, all right, a little rice, it's good. You know, they tell you, yeah. you know, for digestion, just eat white rice. Yeah. But I just, I stopped. No, it's, and it's, it's the, the you know, the brat diet. Have you heard about that? It's, mm. it's um, bread, rice, apples, and I forget what T stands for. Right, yeah. Um, it's what they tell often people who have colitis or have right. um, Crohn's oh, that yeah. they need to eat. And they're actually the most inflammatory foods. Right. The problem is that, of course, that all that, the you know, those, those starchy foods are they bind and they're relatively easy to digest, but at the same time they're also furthering the problem. And do you take any supplements that help with inflammation? Uh, yeah, I do, and I, I think of supplementation just as what the word is. It's a supplement to a positive, healthy relationship with food. So it doesn't take the place of, and I think that's one of the problems that oftentimes we have this. I, I call this transactional medicine. Mm -hmm. We have this notion that. There's a transaction. I have a problem. I go to the doctor. I present the problem to the doctor. The do doctor presents me with the, the pill. And that, and then I've done my part. And that takes the responsibility of health off of the individual mm -hmm. versus um, understanding that, well, the decisions I'm making on a daily basis, those are going to impact this health, that I, this vessel mm -hmm. that I'm in. And if you are stuck in that model of transactional health and you switch the pill for the supplement or you switch the supplement for the food, and you right. say, what food do I need to eat because I need to detox my liver? Well, maybe you should just not be putting such a heavy load on your liver mm -hmm. and worry less about the detoxing and 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 more about making sure you're not getting toxed in the first place. Right. Well, that's coffee and alcohol. Yep. And sugar. And sugar. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Sugar's an easy one for me. Like, I don't miss that. You're lucky. Yeah. I mean, but I'll, a handful of blueberries... Still, to me, is you know, it's sweet. It is, and it's remarkable. I'm sure you've noticed this as if you've cut your sugar intake, how sweet things actually are. Yeah, mm -hmm. and where there's sugar in places that you might not even realize. Cinnamon it. is really delicious yeah. if you get good cinnamon. Exactly. Yeah, yeah cinnamon is a great. Cinnamon is a really, really good hack mm -hmm. to, especially for people that are have a have a hard time breaking up with sugar in their mm -hmm. coffee. 
switching right. to adding a little bit of cinnamon mm-hmm. really will help. So do you ever have like steel cut oats for breakfast? Or I, do you? Yeah, or I do does, every once in a while. You do? Yeah, okay. I do every once in a while. I like savory oats. Mm-hmm. Um, I like doing oats with like a fried egg and maybe a little bit of bacon in them and some greens and making it like a risotto mm-hmm. uh, using chicken stock or beef stock. Okay. Um, but I don't do it that often. So the, those sorts of things. And, you, and oats are oats are a funny thing. Like oat milk is everyone's talking about how I don't cr- get it. It's so bad for you. Yeah. And and. Everyone thinks it's so great, and the reality is that most oats, conventional oats, are st- are stored in the same containers mm-hmm. that, gl- that grains are. Right. So they they have trace gluten in them. Um, they uh, they're they have lectins in them, so they're they're inflammatory in that sense. Uh, and there's a lot of carbohydrates. So if you're yeah. taking and then if you're you're soaking that and you're making the liquid from it, you know it's probably more. You're not even getting the fiber. And there's benefit. tons of sugar in it because that's the only way to make it taste good. If your health is great, you know, have at. Right. If you feel fine. It's not such a big deal. It's I think it's almost more dangerous to go through life thinking, you know, worrying about the piano that's going to fall out of the sky and land on mm-hmm. you. Like if you if you're doing okay, then you're doing okay. Yeah. Um, the one caveat to that is that we talk about this idea of healthcare, and healthcare in this country is really sick care mm-hmm. because we don't care for our health at all. And what I would and I do try to encourage people to do is, if you're feeling great, then keep it up. And keep taking care of yourself. Don't think that it's um, it's you know uh, carte blanche to go out and just party all the time. Because, and I see this a lot with the, my younger colleagues in the restaurant industry who are in their twenties and are, you know, they're, they they can get by. You can soldier through anything. Yeah, so could you when you were? 20. Yeah, I did too. Yeah. And then I started paying the consequences right. immediately. As I turned the corner at thirty, and yeah. like shit went downhill fast. Yeah. So what are you working on now mostly? Uh, so now I do, I'm working on a bunch of different projects, a couple of media projects, mm-hmm. um, consulting, working on another book. Um, what's a book? What, what's a different kind of book? It's going to touch on food, but it's going to be, kind of be a little bit more about, the reality is that most guys just kind of need to be told what to do. Mm-hmm. They don't necessarily want to do the research. They want to be told what clothes to wear, uh-huh. what music should I listen to, what's the latest workout I should be doing, mm-hmm. just tell me what to eat. I'll, I'll do it. Just right. give me the. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I'm working on kind of a roadmap for being the best version of yourself. Mm-hmm. And and what kind of media pro- project? Um, a podcast mm-hmm. and a video series mm-hmm. um, and hopefully some TV. So yeah. we'll, we'll see. And no food products? No. Possibly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm in conversations okay. about that sort of stuff. Have, you, I, have you been to the natural food show in California? Mm-hmm. Anaheim? Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. My first day I was there, I I ate every friggin' gummy. Yeah. I was sick to my stomach. Really? Everyone kept like passing out gummies. I'm like, oh, I'll take a gummy. I'll take oh, a God. gummy. Uh, what kind of gummies were I don't they? know. I just, it was a gummy. I was you like, You couldn't oh. see straight afterwards. Yeah. Oh. But no, I think it's it'd California. Be, you never yeah. know. But I think it'd be really cool for you to have your own. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I'm really interested in is how can we democratize this idea of health and wellness? Mm-hmm. Because it really right now only seems to be speaking to the 2%. Right. And I think the people that need most urgently mm-hmm. um, other alternatives to the current right. system uh, don't have the don't have the financial means, right. don't have the access to it. So if right. there's a way that you know I can help, and I think information is the beginning, mm-hmm. and hopefully it does tri- trickle right. down from the two percent. But um, you know I, I would love to see better quality food options that are readily available in, across the, the middle of the country because it's really easy in, in New York and Los Angeles and right. California to to find great food options. And mm-hmm. you, you go to these great grocery stores that have tons of stuff. But it's very difficult um, 
to get fresh produce, to get high quality fresh produce, to have very good, you know, good, good food, quality food in, in, in a lot of the in, in the areas of the country that need it the most. I mean, it's more than just the availability of it. Sometimes I, you know, I drive home to visiting one of my kids in college and you go into these like weird like supermarkets and like weird areas and you're like, these people, like they just don't look healthy. Yeah. And, you know, the carts are full of Captain Crunch and, you know, diet this and diet that and they're enormous. Yeah. Like something something's not working. It's not working. And unfortunately, it's also not their fault. And I think that's something that's really important to remember is that if you're struggling with illness or you're overweight or type two diabetics, it's actually it's not your fault. You've been sold a a, a faulty bill of, of goods. And we've been told for too long that the the standard American diet, mm-hmm. the sad diet is uh, is based on the food pyramid that was right. sold to us in the 1950s, that this is the secret to health. And yet we continue to do, I mean, what did Einstein say? The, the definition of insanity mm-hmm. is uh, is banging your head against the wall and do, trying to do the same thing over and over again, hoping for a different result. Right. And we've been following the same pattern and we've watched as we've gone to lower and lower mm-hmm. fat and more and more diet. Right. We've watched uh, the, the the instances of type 2 diabetes and all the related illnesses go through the roof. Mm-hmm. Um, so clearly, we're not, we haven't been doing something right for a long time because in the 2 million years of human existence up until the, the 20th century, we were doing okay right. <laughs> for yeah. the most part with a few blips on the roadmap, but for the most part, we were doing okay. So the, we're, we are doing something wrong, and it's really, really sad, and unfortunately, we need to change the conversation, and there has to be more education about what constitutes real food for real health. And uh, could you do me a favor? Could you tell all the guys that are listening, yep. including the guys in this room, <laughs> yeah. all right, what, how do you start? How do you, how do you get them like even interested? They know they want to feel better. Yeah. They know they want to look better. But how do you, like, what's the one thing they could do that's going to change? For them, well, sorry. Okay, <laughs> shave. No, uh, no, no. I think that um, the the beginning, the very first step, and this is the most important step for me, was I stopped thinking of myself as a sick person. So mm-hmm. it's a mindset. It has to start with a mindset. Don't think of yourself as a sick person. You may have an illness right now. Well, they're not sick. Well, I'm not saying okay. they are. But I'm yeah. just saying that 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 for me, like right. it's the mindset. It's the beginning okay. of of thinking yourself uh, thinking of yourself as someone who can exercise autonomy over this meat vessel that you're living in. Right. You mm-hmm. have control over your meat vessel. Mm-hmm. Then, a few concrete steps. The the the, I think the single most important thing for me was eating with regularity and portion control. Regularity. Portion control. Did we order them lunch today? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay no, so they watch yeah. me and Michelle eat lunch. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's not good. No, it's they not gotta good. They got to be participating. Yeah. Yeah. Hello. So, and, and another thing that also when you're eating, I mean, I, not again, not to be super mm-hmm. woo woo, but to be a little woo woo, yeah. be present when you're eating. So put down your phone. Don't read something. The Buddha said if you read, he who reads and eats at the same time neither reads nor eats. Does Instagram count? Instagram well, I'm not reading. I'm looking is, at pictures. No, it's the same thing. Okay. You're mindless. Like, <laughs> take a minute yeah. to actually be present with your thoughts or in conversation with someone else. Mm-hmm. The great thing about conversation is that you can't, unless you're like Joe Pesci, you can't like eat yeah. and talk at the same time super fast. Uh-huh. So you actually, it forces you to slow yourself down, right. to, to, to chew your food a little bit more, which will inherently, I mean, one of the things that I always notice is that when I eat quickly... 
afterwards, I still feel hungry and I eat more. Mm -hmm. But if I eat slowly, I'm amazed that actually after a few minutes, my brain gets the message that I'm sated right. and I don't actually want any more. So that's that's the first thing. Be present, eat meals, mm -hmm. whether it's two times a day, four times a day, five times a day, three times a day, whatever it is. Uh, figure out what, what works for you. Uh, I suggest everyone work up to trying to skip breakfast every once in a while. Um, and it's and it's okay to be hungry. Being hungry is actually a really good thing. Uh, our ancestors spent the majority of their life hungry and they were fine. Um, so we have this fear that like our kids go out the door and you've got to make sure, don't, oh, don't be hungry to eat something. You got to eat something. We're constantly trying to make sure that they're, mm -hmm. they're eating food. And, and so we get ingrained in this idea that you can't be hungry and you're worried about where your next meal is going to come. So what I, what I like to do is I, I plan out in my mind when I'm going to eat, what I'm going to eat. And I, I can do it in my mind now. I used to actually plot it out and write it out mm -hmm. so that it's 11 o'clock and I'm really, really hungry, but I know that at one o'clock I'm going to have a great meal. And so I'm anticipating that meal. And then when I get the meal, I'm really grateful and present and enjoying the meal. So um, where could people that are listening like know everything you're doing? Um, on social media, I'm at Seamus Mullen, S-E-A-M-U-S-M-U-L-L-E-N. And my website is SeamusMullen.com. Um, that's probably the, the best way, really, to find out about me. And I, I'm anytime I'm doing events or speaking engagement, I'll be at the Charleston Food and Wine Festival next week, doing a couple mm. of uh, doing a talk there with my friend Catherine Budig, who's an amazing yogi, and uh, a couple of dinners as well. Okay, so, there'll yeah. be a lot of dried cranberries in your salads. Then. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and some sweet tea. So, well, mm -hmm. I look forward to seeing all the things you're doing and following you around. And um, thank you for the signed book. I am thank going you. to. I'm really bad with reading, um, you know how to how to do a recipe. But I'm good at oh, looking at. The yeah, pictures. no, that's all you need to do. Yeah. And as a caveat to my book, I there there are two kinds of people in this world: those uh -huh. that follow recipes and those that don't. Right. I'm in the latter camp. Okay. I write recipes. I don't follow yeah. them. And the the biggest compliment anyone can pay me is to take an idea from my cookbook and mm -hmm. make it their own. Okay. I really am not about, I don't believe that you have to be didactic yeah. about menu, about recipes. You got to just get in the kitchen, cook, mm -hmm. enjoy the act of cooking. Yeah. And if a picture inspires you, a dish inspires you, but you've got something that you like better, do it your way. Uh, well, I hope you are heard loudly and people, you know, really take some advice. So thanks so much for Thank joining. Thank you. Thanks for having yeah, me. It was a pleasure. That was my conversation with Seamus Mullen. I cannot wait to see what he does next. He is has so many ideas, and I think he's an amazing role model. And that's it for this episode of Long Story Short. If you like the show, tell a friend. Also, rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions for me, email them to askbobbybrown at gmail.com, or you can follow me on Instagram at justbobbybrown and let me know who you'd like me to interview, anything else you want to see. Thanks for listening. This is Long Story Short with Bobby Brown, a Gallery Media Group production. 